One of my favorite movies is Castaway. I think I've talked about this before. My wife cannot understand why I would like such a sad, boring, soundtrackless movie, but I love it. And uh, I grew up watching Tom Hanks, you know what I mean? Like he was fun. Remember when he used to be funny and then he transitioned to being a dramatic actor? Bosom Buddies, which you could never get away with now? Anyway, again, not part of the talk, but it's just, it's happening, I'm sorry. So in Castaway, the story is he's a FedEx, he works for FedEx and he's flying on a trip to, I think he's going to Russia to try to figure out what's wrong with the supply chain and the, the plane goes down in the middle of the ocean. No one would have ever survived, but somehow he did anyway. You know this, okay. Uh, and so he survives, he ends up marooned on this island, and he's there, and one of the first things he does is he traces the word help in the sand, hoping that someone would fly over and see it, and he quickly is depressed because the tide comes in and just washes it away, and he's just like, I'm alone. Like, this is what's happening. And then he makes it out of logs and tries to find help, and the whole movie is his journey of trying to find uh, rescue off of this island. Well, today, we are going to be looking at the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua, Joshua 2, Joshua chapter 2. And Rahab is someone who, she also puts out a sign for deliverance. It's sort of like the, the, the key part of the story is that she hangs out this, um, this sign for help, for looking for salvation, looking for deliverance. And in her case, she finds it, and she is saved, and she is delivered. So why are we talking about Rahab? Well, if you remember, we're going through this series right now called The Gospel Family Tree, looking at the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew lays out for us in Matthew 1. And we're just sort of cherry-picking through 12 of these different people who we see along here, some of them whom we know their stories because they're talked about in other parts of Scripture. And so we've talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah last week, and that crazy story with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Rahab. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can look at Matthew 1. I'll just read it. We'll have it up there behind me as well. But Matthew says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, meaning he's from this family line. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, his 11 brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, who we're going to hear about next week, fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. So right here in the middle of this first six verses, we have this this woman appears in the story named Rahab. Why is she here? Why does Matthew feel the need to name her and draw her out of this genealogy the way that he did with Tamar and the way that he does with Ruth and Eventually, we see Bathsheba and leading to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, let's look at this story together. If you go to Joshua 2, give a little bit of context for this. If you know this story, forgive me for catching uh, some others up, but the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of our Bible are uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is is showing the, the people of God, starting in Genesis Good creation, fall, sin, brokenness, God's rescue plans enacted through Abraham. The people end up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 
Moses comes along and he delivers the people by God's hand out of Egypt, which is that song, that, that song, that poem that we read earlier in Exodus 15. And he leads the people out and they have these rebellions and so they wander around in the desert for 40 years till finally they get to the edge of the Jordan River, the edge of this land that had been promised to them and they're about ready to cross over into the promised land and Moses is going to die, hands authority over to Joshua and Joshua is now in charge of the people of Israel under God's leadership, but Joshua is the human in charge of this tribe of people getting ready to cross over the Jordan. And God tells Joshua in Joshua 1, be strong and courageous, obey me, obey the, 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 the covenant that I've made with you, and be strong and courageous, and go across the Jordan, go in and take the land. But then in chapter 2, we see that he sends out spies to check out the land first, which is reminiscent of something that Moses had done earlier that Joshua had actually been a part of. And scholars think that there's a chance that Joshua 2 actually occurs before Genesis 1, but they want to catch us up on what's been going on, and they want to bring Rahab into the picture for good reason. So if you can picture the people of Israel, they're, they're, they're gathered on the side of the Jordan River, they're looking across at the promised land, they're, they're getting ready to go in, and, and Joshua does the following. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, or uh, Shatim is what it says in Hebrew, saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. Jericho is one of the bigger cities, kind of in charge in the area. So this all happens in verse 1. So they left, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So if you thought last week was interesting, now we're on to prostitutes, okay? Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they came from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, because they would wall off the city, at nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out. And I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. Just throwing them off the trail, right? But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men, like the, the people from Jericho, the men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. So now the men are trapped inside. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord, she's calling out Yahweh here, not her God, I know the Lord has given you this land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. The language that she uses here, scholars have pointed this out, the language that she uses here is actually the language from Exodus 15 that, this, that we read earlier, that this terror has fallen us. We are panicked. We're frozen with fear, which is what Moses and Miriam sang about. That when we get ready to go through the land, the people are going to be freaked out. And she's saying, that's what I am. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings who they had already disposed of, uh, disposed of earlier in the book, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below." 
Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. So she's on the outside of the wall, lowering them down so they're on the other side of the gate. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault, and you will be innocent, and we will be innocent, rather. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replied, and she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So the men go back, tell the people what they found. Moses gets the troops ready. They make a plan, and they move on the city of Jericho. Many of you know the story that they march around the city for seven days, collapsing its walls. Clearly not completely, otherwise Rahab would be dead. Just archaeological thinking here, okay, right? So when it gets to, you get to chapter 6, we see what happens. They burned the city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she still lives in Israel today. So you have... God, who's getting ready to judge Jericho, using the people of God to do it, to say that this city will be destroyed. The spies, they fail at their mission. Now, scholars argue about this. Some would say, no, they were good guys. They just went to the prostitute's house to get information. Other scholars are like, no, they were wayward and they went to the prostitute's house for the reason you go to a prostitute's house. Either way, they stink at being spies because they're immediately exposed, right? They're immediately found out, and they're nameless. The, the text does not tell us who they are because they're in, like shameful people. They stink at their job. But Rahab is named. The story is about her, that she is, is spared by her faith in action, trusting in God's deliverance. And what we see in this is God's love for the nations, because you have a foreign prostitute brought into the family of God, and she lives in Israel to this day, the author tells us. So let's just think about this for a second. Rahab, the prostitute, who she's referred to as through the rest of Scripture, like they want us to know, Hebrews, James, Rahab, the prostitute, is saved by faith, by grace. Rahab is expressing faith. Do you see this? That, that, that this thing is about to happen to her and she cries out. She, she starts offering up faith and by it, she's saved. 
and brought into the family of God. She says in verse 10, like, I have heard of God's deliverance. Like I said, quoting some of maybe from Exodus 15, using similar language. I have heard of God's deliverance. I heard that God is able to save. I heard that God brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea. I have heard of his deliverance. She's, she's confessing with her mouth. Do you hear it? That I've heard of what God can do. I've heard who God is. It's your God who's God in heaven above, on earth below. Like, your God is God. There's this, this oral confession of something that she heard of God's deliverance of the people of Israel. And she's confessing singularly that Yahweh is God. This is the monotheism that so typifies Israel that's different than every other religion at that time. She's saying, there's one God, and it's your God. It's not my God's, it's your God. I have heard of the deliverance, and I confess with my mouth that your God is God. She confesses it. And then what does she do, friends? She enacts it. (laughs) She puts it to work, right? She starts to take action based on what's happening in her heart. She starts working it out in real life. You hear when she says, our courage is gone. My courage is gone in myself, in my gods, in my way of doing life. And she disavows herself from her kingdom through treason and says, I trust your kingdom. My courage is in your kingdom. Friends, this is the mark of a believer. (laughs) It's someone who says, my courage is gone in self. It's in God. In heaven above, on earth below, that is where my courage is. I'm disavowing my kingdom. I'm living for your kingdom. I trust your kingdom. Do you hear it? And she commits treason, hiding the spies, lying to the king's messengers who come to her. Like, again, we could have an ethical conversation about situational lies. I don't know, but that's not the point of of the story. She's committing treason, disavowing herself of her kingdom, her known kingdom, everything that her life has been invested in. She's saying, no more, I'm for this kingdom. And the end result is that she's saved, that she is delivered, her and her household, which who knows how many people that is. And I was thinking, I don't know what, like, we, we, the text doesn't say, so we can't read into this too much. I don't know what her prostitution, how it was viewed by her family. Was it shameful? Was there an estrangement there? Was she the sole breadwinner? And now she's turning her back on it? Had they not talked to her in years because she's like that wayward daughter that we don't want to know anything about? But either way, she's like, come to my house and be saved. That's a, that's a weird family reunion if that's the case. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and they come together and, they're, and, they're, and she's rescuing the oikos, the, the, the household, by hanging this scarlet cord on her window so that she can receive mercy. That God's judgment is coming on the city and she's appealing to God to save her. She's appealing to the people of God to save her. A.W. Tozer, who's a famous author in our denomination, uh, wrote The Pursuit of God, The Holiness of God, a great author. Um, he says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, we must take refuge from God in God. You hear it. We must take refuge from God in God. And in this situation, like 
Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. The world is going to be put to rights. This evil city is going to be crushed. The people of God are going to be saved. God's doing it, but she has to find salvation in God. We have to find salvation like, by, like from God in God, as it were. And through her, her whole family comes to saving relationship in Israel. They are preserved. They are kept. And she lives in Israel to this day, the text tells us. And does this, does this scarlet cord remind anybody of anything? Because it should. It, it should, should prompt something in our memories. If, again, if you know the Old Testament and you know the story of the people who've come out of Egypt, you know that God is bringing judgment through 10 plagues, the last of which will be that the firstborn are all going to be killed if they do not do what? Paint the blood of this innocent lamb over their doorposts and say, I'm finding refuge from God in God. I'm trusting him. Paint it over the doorway. You see the red painted over the door, and here it is happening again that they're saying, hang this thing in your window. So we look at the wall, we'll know that's where you are, and we will save you. Death will be spa- like spared. You will be spared. Death will pass over you and your household. So you have this foreign prostitute brought into the family of God by grace through faith. But what I want to sort of key in here is that genuine faith does the works of God. We talked about this, I don't know, a year ago when we went through the series in James, which is all about faith and works working together. Genuine faith does the works of God. And fascinatingly, James, in writing his treatise on why works actually matter, that like when you are genuinely saved, you do things, not to earn salvation, but it's, it's like proving your salvation. It's like working it out. He says this in James 2.20, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless or faith without works is, is dead? Wasn't, now listen to who he names here as symbols of faith. Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar, like we talked about a few weeks ago? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. It was matured. It reached its end. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, he could name anyone here. He's named Abraham as an example. Now he picks Rahab. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Abraham and Rahab used as symbols of faith working itself out, faith, genuine faith, doing the works of God. Trusting God in faith demonstrates itself by then doing, by actual application, by, by living itself out. Okay, I've never done this before, so here's what we're going to do. I need a volunteer. I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise. One brave person. I won't, I won't make eye contact. Just one brave person. It involves sitting in a chair. That's it. For those listening to the podcast later, I have Dana on stage. 
helping out. Okay, so here's our chair. You've seen chairs before. You know chairs. You're using some now. Dana, I'm offering you the chair to sit in. Do you believe that the chair is good for sitting in? Okay. Does she? Do you believe that the chair will hold you? She does. But does she? How do you know? She sits in it, right? So feel free to sit down. So now faith is enacted, right? Do you see it? So she, she does believe, but she does something about it, right? Faith, genuine faith does the works of God, sits in the chair, right? Genuine faith builds its life, like Jesus says, builds your life on the foundation of his word. Thank you. You've done a wonderful job. Thank you. Right, great. For next, my next, next magic trick. Faith is stated, but faith is also demonstrated. Friends, like for our own good, it's not to prove anything to God. God knows our hearts. But, but genuine faith, it does stuff. Genuine faith puts itself into practice and works itself out. And Rahab does that. She confesses, she's heard, she confesses, she enacts it. Here's the other part I love about Rahab, though. She doesn't get her life together first. Do you see this? Rahab, the prostitute, is saved while still being a prostitute. That's the point of salvation, friends. She doesn't get her life together first. It's not by her works that she's saved. It's not that she gets right with God and then he saves her. It's like she's a prostitute, hangs the scarlet cord, saved. That's it. That's the beauty of salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel. I want to read something from Ephesians. Lest we think that we need works to be saved, I'm just saying they demonstrate salvation. Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Saved by grace through faith not from yourselves, it is the gift of God in his mercy, in his love, not saying, get your lives together and then I'll save you. He's like, you are a mess, own it, come to me for salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel. And finally, again, I've pointed this out already, but Rahab, saved by grace through faith, is a foreigner brought into the family of God. She's an outsider brought in. And through her, her family of outsiders is brought in to the family of God, into salvation. The outsiders 
brought in. And what Joshua shows us is that she lived in Israel for the rest of her life. What Ruth's storyline helps us know, what Matthew's storyline helps us know is that she then becomes part of the family of the Christ. That Jesus comes from this family with a prostitute in its background. Is this not beautiful redemption of God's family? So for us today, what does this mean? Well, we need to recognize the fact that God will judge the earth and the walls of our Jericho will come down. Now we could, again, scholars, we could argue about the theology of that and what that means and what that will look like and when that is, but, but God is a God of justice and we actually want him to be. We want God to put the world to rights. We want him to fix things. And someday he will completely. But what it means is that the unfixed things, the broken things, will be dealt with in some way. We have to admit, though, that in dealing with the brokenness, in dealing with the murderous, he has to deal with the hateful, which is our heart. In dealing with the sex trade, he has to deal with our internal lusts and brokenness. Do you see it? In dealing with all the corruption and greed that's in the world, he has to deal with the greed that's in our hearts and the stinginess that's in our hearts, in our lives. So we have to admit that God is going to judge. We want him to judge, but the problem is we're in it. That's a problem. That's a problem for us. And we get to see in this story that Jesus is also the king of the whole world. God is a God of the outsiders too, that he wants to bring them into his kingdom. That's what Matthew is showing us, that Jesus is the true Israel, and in him the outsiders can come in and be insiders. They get to become part of the family of God and live in Israel for the rest of their days. This is the beauty of Jesus. Jesus says early on in his ministry, Yes, I am the good shepherd, and Israel is always called the sheep. And they're like, cool, the shepherd's here. That's us. And he's like, I have sheep who aren't of this pasture too. Whoa, wait, who's that? It's us. Most of us being Gentiles. We get brought in through Jesus. Outsiders brought into the family of God. You and me invited into a saving relationship with God through Jesus. Perhaps you feel like an outsider, Perhaps you feel like, no, nah, I don't know. I don't know if God really wants me. I don't know if I really belong here. Jesus says, come in, come in. Rahab the prostitute came in, so can you, right? Like that's, that's part of this invitation of the gospel. And you don't need to be perfect first. Friends, this is the good news for us every day is that you do not need to be perfect first to come into the family of God. Jesus is the perfect one. We claim his perfection as our own. And he's willing to give it to us, inviting us into the family of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the well, I came to heal the sick, right? He didn't come to just, oh, look, look, I'm going to just accept the good people out there, the people who are well-to-do and they've got it to get. He says, no, no, I've come for the broken. I've come for the needy. I've come for the marginalized. I've come for the sinful, for the broken, for the people who are willing to admit it and actually bring them into my family. And so often we miss this. Sin and we fail, and then we think, Oh, I've got to earn my way back into God's good graces. No, 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 run to God, run to Him. 
Hang the scarlet cord out. Say, no, no, I need you. Only you are God, I'm not. I need your salvation. I don't need to be perfect first. You know that I'm not, I'm coming into your presence. So look, what do we do? We join Rahab in confessing, in believing, in enacting, doing the works of God by faith. We confess the rule and reign of God through Jesus and we say, I need deliverance. I need deliverance from my past. I need deliverance from my present. And I'm gonna need deliverance in the future. Praise God, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's there. We claim that we need deliverance. I have seen you deliver and I want to be part of that. Give it to me, please. I want it. Confess the rule and reign from God. I need deliverance from that bad habit. I need deliverance from that skeleton in my closet. I need deliverance from, I know, that dumb thing I'm going to do. So whatever it is, like, I need it. And then when we come in, we swear allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus and no other kingdom. No other kingdom. We disavow the kingdoms of this world. Man, do we need to hear that. (laughs) Our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world. Our hope is in the kingdom of Jesus. And we say, I'm not even part of those kingdoms. I'm in his kingdom. You're God, I'm not, they're not. I'm in your kingdom. And we build our life on the promises of God, on his commands, on his ethics. Not earning, just getting to live in. Not by obligation, but by opportunity, like we get to. Living into the goodness of God. orienting our life around grace-motivated obedience, trusting God that it is full life. And when we fail at it, quickly running back, saying, I need deliverance. See, I messed it up again. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And we move on. This is the beauty of the gospel. So like Rahab, we hang out the, the scarlet cord on the windows of our lives. That same thread of red runs from Rahab to Jesus, really from the Passover, to Rahab hanging it on her window, to the blood of Jesus on the cross, the atonement for our sins. So we paint it on the doorposts of our lives. We take the scarlet cord, we hang it on the windows of our lives and say, yep, I need deliverance. I need salvation. I'm falling under that. That is what my life is about. It's only there that I find freedom. We take refuge from God in God. Tozer goes on to say that we hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ. We take all of our brokenness, all of our mess, and we say, it's in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm saved. I am delivered, hanging the scarlet thread of Jesus on the window of my life. Save me, the outsider, the broken one, the messed up one. Save me. Bring me into the family of God. So for us, as we think about this, maybe you go about your week, what does it mean? Oh, that's a nice story about this prostitute all those thousands of years ago who came into the family of God. What's that mean for us? Hopefully you can see that it means gospel for you too. (laughs) That you get to live this out. That we get to be a part of this together. For me, this past week, uh, this meant hanging the the scarlet cord of Jesus' blood over My hatred just wells up in my heart sometimes, the bitterness that comes out, saying, forgive me. Forgive me for that. I don't want that. Under you. 
my lack of forgiveness for people. I say, Jesus, oh, thanks for pointing it out. I want to be a loving person. Scarlet cord, <laughs> blood of the cross, blood of the Passover. I'm putting it under you. You atone for it. You make me better. <laughs> it's only in you that I can be saved. Believing that God can forgive and change even me, even you. And then acting on it. Doing the works of God the next day, saying, well, I'm going to try and do better. Not to earn it, but because it's already been earned for me. Worshiping Jesus to say, yep, he's called me to be loving. There's life there. I don't want to be hateful. I don't want to be unforgiving. So in this coming week, are you, will you just give verbal assent? Oh yeah, I did the church thing. Yahweh's God. Jesus did the thing. Cool. But still live in Jericho? (laughs) Still trying to wall up inside of that city that's going to crumble? Or maybe are you trying to get it all right before you go to God? I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to do all my quiet times, God, five days in a row, and then maybe I'll talk to you. Jesus just says, come, come right now, now. I'll help you get right. Friends, if you sin and stumble this week and God points it out to you or somebody else points it out to you, just run. Run to God. Don't run away. Just run to him. Throw out the scarlet cord. (laughs) Like, I need salvation. I can't do it. I need you, Jesus. Don't run away from him. Or, on the other side of things, this happens in church over time, are there people in your life who you can see their sin and you want them to get right now instead of helping them call on Jesus. Wanting them to fix all their stuff first before you will actually offer them the love and hospitality of Jesus. We have a tendency to do that. We become religious and legalists ourselves rather than pointing to the mercy of God. We're all in process. We all need to hang out the scarlet thread every day. And we need one another to help do that together. Let us be people who hang out the scarlet cord of Jesus for all to see finding deliverance, and in so doing, offering it to the outsiders. Offering it to them to say, come in. Modeling it, asking them to come in and be part of the new family of God.